1: I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. Let me take a minute and tell you about Zencaster, the company I've recorded with for over two years. I also use Zencaster to publish my podcast and I can use them for editing everything a podcaster needs to create a podcast. Podcasting grew exponentially in 2021 and 2022 and it's not slowing down. In fact, podcasting advertising was the fastest-growing channel in 2021. Why am I telling you this? If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. 15% of all active podcast creators, including me, are already using Zencaster. Go to wefundercom Zencaster. Zencaster is spelled Z E N C A S T R. There's no E at the end. Thank you. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is when dating hurts. A podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. I met J.R. Meyer a couple of years ago. He is a victim advocate with the Office of Victim Advocate in Pennsylvania. His insights into helping victims of domestic violence will give you a clear picture of what takes place in the months and years after horrendous crimes happen. Let's listen to my interview with JR. Hi JR, I'd like to welcome you to the When Dating Hurts podcast series.
2: Thank you Bill, my pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks for finding time to speak with me today and as you know this podcast is about dating violence. By definition, on the website, the Pennsylvania Office of Victim Advocate, or OVA, is the state agency dedicated to representing, protecting, and advancing the individual and collective rights and interests of crime victims. So that's the website's definition. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that?
2: Maybe just a little bit, try to define that a little bit better for people who may not know exactly what that means. Sure. Um, we are victim services for the State Department of Corrections, the State Board of Probation and Parole here in Pennsylvania. In addition, we are responsible for, to some degree, providing training and technical assistance to local county-level victim assistance providers. They can be community-based in shelters, sometimes they're systems-based in DA's offices. But we provide some training and technical assistance to them, and then additionally we have some special programs that are run out of this office. As a couple examples, the Inmate Apology Bank and um Program that I manage, the Address Confidentiality Program. So, those are some of our other responsibilities besides just advancing the rights of crime victims here in Pennsylvania.
1: So, how would you describe your position or day to day task within the Office of Victim Advocate? And how long have you been doing it?
2: I have been a victim advocate here in Pennsylvania on and off since 1997. Um, I say on and off because I did take 10 years out to teach. I taught uh, a public high school where I taught American government psychology, sociology, and some street law classes. Mm. I came back to victim services because it just felt like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I have been working in the world of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking ever since. I've been back in the field for almost 18 years. Right now, my job duties: I'm a victim assistance coordinator here at OVA. That means I have a regular caseload of clients for things like face-to-face, which would be interviews with the parole board. But my primary responsibility right now is that I manage a program for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania called the Address Confidentiality Program. That provides a confidential address to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and their children here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania.
1: I mean, that almost sounds like a a variation on witness protection programs.
2: And there are some primary differences. Okay. Okay. So first and foremost, witness protection is a federal program. Okay. There are no federal programs for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. What I'm able to do is to allow you to use our post office box in Harrisburg to have all your mail sent, to actually become your primary physical address. we become the keeper of record with regards to your residential address, and it becomes a protected piece of confidential information here in the Commonwealth. Uh What I give you is an address in Harrisburg, and then I direct all entities in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that are uh, local, state, or county government to comply with the address. Uh, We're able to change the driver's license to reflect just the P.O. Box, All the other driving documentation, your your title and registration are all uh, changed to the post office box. Your voter registration is is changed to uh, stop reflecting a street address. Literally, Bill, everything from the state level down to the local, local, tiny little municipality level is augmented in such a way that your residential address is my post office box here in Harrisburg. Then we forward all your first class mail to you so that if it's done correctly, the only people who know your residential address would be you and me.
1: Yeah, I wondered how things like that happen. You know, I've had people who have been in touch with me who are kind of on the run. You know, they, they really, they grab the kids, you know, in most cases, women grab the kids and gotten any car, you know, kind of took off, you know, and they're on the move. And this way, what you're telling me is their male can go to a specific spot so they can at least communicate with people, you know, and get important documents. So
2: something to keep in mind, because there's no federal initiative, there's no federal program that's an address confidentiality program for for the same classes of victims, it's been up to the states to fill in that gap. 37 states have them, and the District of Columbia has them. Okay. Uh, so Pennsylvania is one of 38 programs. We have formed a professional association about seven or eight years ago, so that we're able to get together and share best practices. And we do. I know the other, uh, well, I know 37 of the other, I'm sorry, 36 of the other 37 administrators. We share best practices. So uh, I think probably what I would suggest is if you come across people who think they might benefit from this, even if it's not in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, they'll put them in touch with me because I would be happy to to take them look at my list, see if the state they're intending to move to has an ACP. And then I can even hook them up with the administrator of that program so they're able to try to get the ball rolling to get them enrolled. If for any reason, the state they're moving to does not have its own ACP. Pennsylvania does is one of the only states that has an ACP that does not have a residency requirement. So literally, as we sit here right now, I've got clients. i got one in Alaska, at least two in California. Okay, good. One in Texas, one in Oklahoma. And these are all people who have either not joined the ACP in the state where they have moved to because they prefer to try to keep the trail leading to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or these are people who have joined states that don't have their own ACP. still want some type of protection, even though they lose a lot of it because I don't have jurisdiction in Alaska. So they still want uh, the ability to use our post office box and our law allows it. So we'll allow that to happen as well.
1: Among your duties and responsibilities, you prepare victims and in some cases it's their families when they want to testify before parole boards. What I wanted to know is, would you say that the purpose of families testifying is always to try to keep offenders behind bars for as long as possible? I mean, is that really the core of what they're testifying about?
2: Um, No. Uh, Believe it or not, I have people in all walks of life with all opinions with regards to the possibility of parole. Because of my specific caseload, because a lot of the cases that I am handed are domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and those types of crimes tend to evoke very strong emotional feelings, generally aversions, a lot of my clients from those types of crimes are very anti-parole. But I, I have had more than my fair share of clients who um, either for a religious reason, I can't sit in judgment, or uh, because they've forgiven them, or, or simply because I've been incarcerated and I didn't like being in jail, I don't want to put anybody else in jail. I have had plenty of people come forward and say, please let them out. Oh. And at wow. least one domestic case where they had fallen back in love and she wanted him out so they could continue being a family again.
1: Okay, that's insightful. In the cases that you handle, with the OVA. Are there offenders or convicts typically, are they typically in prison for homicide or, or just about any kind of crime?
2: So because I deal specifically with domestic violence, sexual assault and stalking,
1: right. For the most
2: part, my cases are going to be assaultive, uh, whether that assault a physical assault or whether it's a sexual assault, it could be stalking type behavior, which can encompass things like harassment, terroristic threats, simple assault. For the most part, those are the, the crimes that I deal with on a very regular basis. Okay. Homicide, of course, is part of our daily life here because most most murderers are sent to state prison. Uh, I do deal with homicide an awful lot. Uh, And then simply because of logistics, there are times that I'm asked to handle cases that are not related to domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking, simply because I'm the next man up. I'm the guy who's got a free spot. So uh, I will occasionally deal with a garden variety robbery or burglary or DUI even. But for the most part, domestic violence-based cases sexual assault cases, human trafficking, sometimes stalking, and definitely, unfortunately, homicide.
1: Most people I've spoken with have this picture in mind of a parole board hearing. The victim's family is testifying in a room, maybe it's even a courtroom, and the actual offender is present and watching them testify. So, Jr., what does it really look like?
2: The process that's currently in your mind and the one you just described, Bill, is, is very similar to the one that occurs directly after a sentencing in a courtroom. We're completely different. Because he's already been sentenced and his appellate rights have, been ex- have expired, in Pennsylvania probation hearings, we call them reviews. Present for a review, for us, when the offender is interviewed for parole, yes. he will never leave the prison or she. We actually have board members and hearing examiners that are basically stationed at each prison. When an offender is interviewed for parole, they'll be interviewed by that hearing examiner and that board member who were assigned that prison. Usually we got one person in the review room with them and one person who is coming in via video conference. So present in the hearing room are only three people, the board member or hearing examiner, the offender, and you've got a guard keeping everybody safe and that's it. They're not allowed to have representation, not allowed to have an attorney, not allowed to have family, friends. Your priest can't come in and testify for you. This is about you. It's not about everybody else and their opinion of you.
1: How much time do they get to speak, a prisoner?
2: However long the the parole board uh, member feels is necessary. They're in charge of it. I think that they allot usually 15 minutes or 20 minutes for it. Really? That's it? Uh, It it actually uh, sometimes lasts a lot longer. Sometimes it's a lot shorter. Prior to the commission of the actual in-person interview, the offender is asked to create their summary of of the crime. Uh Why are you in prison right now? So that a lot of times is being used by the parole board member who's doing the interviewing to generate the questions. We also have developed the uh, digital file prior to the interview. The digital file literally goes back in time to before the birth of the offender. Oh. It talks about the nature of the relationship of the, the offender's parents. It talks about the birth order they were born in. You know, were they first, second, third, fourth? Did they have siblings? Mm. Did they get along with their siblings and family? Was there were there any drugs or alcohol or violence issues with within regards to the family? Do any of them have incarceration records? Then it talks about, did he do well in school? Did he do poorly? Did he get uh, suspended or expelled? Did he participate in extracurricular activities? All that stuff is in the file. Likewise, a juvenile record, if he has one, Mm -hmm. juvenile records generally are sealed. They're not sealed from the parole board. They have the ability to see that record. Likewise, your entire adult record from every state that's included in this file and everything that you've ever done in prison is included in the file. So we've got more information about him than he even knows about himself before the interview even starts. You mix into that stew comments from you.
1: From the family.
2: Okay. And those comments for you are the only part of the file, or comments from the victim, are the only part of the file not available to the offender. The offender knows everything else contained in that file. Okay. We will neither directly reference nor infer that any other part of the file exists to anybody outside of our actual client. Mm -hmm. because information that is submitted to us on behalf of victims and by victims is 100% confidential with one exception. It is given to the parole board to make their decisions. The parole board has the same guarantee of confidentiality that I have, and that's they are not going to divulge any information directly or refer or infer to it. And just for the record, we have broad shoulders. If we deny parole, we never say that we're denying parole because the victim asked us to. If we deny parole, we got a million good reasons why. They include things like you're demonstrating no insight into your offense. You're not showing appropriate remorse. You are minimizing and denying the nature and circumstances of your crimes. Your tests and assessment indicate you're still a level of risk to the community. I mean, I can do this all day. we got a million good reasons to tell you the same thing, which is no. Mm -hmm. But none of them tie back in any way, shape, or form to our clients. None, ever. That is our decision-making process. They'll actually go out, interview the offender, sit, make a decision, they box up the electronic file, it's shipped off to the next voting member, who then has to sit and sift through all of that material and be exposed to any victim information we have as well. And then they make their decision.
1: Yeah, that's thorough. That's, that's so what decisions reached. Really well done. In trying to keep an offender in prison, does testifying by family members or victims, does testifying against him or her in prison by the family, do you feel it really does any good in your mind? Do you think that the parole board mostly bases their opinion on what they think? You know, like all the information you said that they've reviewed. Do you think it's time well spent?
2: I do think that it makes a difference. If I didn't think that that there was at least some chance that we would move that uh, uh, the, the balance, the scales of justice ever so slightly in our favor, I would do something different. I would put more efforts into safety planning and just assume that they're getting out. I believe I've actually seen process get changed get swayed by the comments made by clients good bill i I will tell you that no matter how well you prepare yourself and other people to hear what they're going to hear when a a victim starts talking you can never tell what's going to happen because sometimes sometimes they feel enough trust that that one thing that they've never told anybody else comes out and that one thing i've been doing this 20 years and i've heard so many horrible things that I sometimes think that I've become slightly immune to horrible. When you say something that makes me stand up and take mm-hmm. notice, mm-hmm. I know the effect it has on the board. Go if ahead. it has that effect on them, I have to believe that it can change their opinion.
1: Yeah, it's has got to move their pens in a different direction.
2: So I do believe that it's fruitful, and I think it's born fruit. I do. And no matter what else, my grandmother always says, the answer to every question you don't ask is no. If you don't ask the parole <laughs> board to deny parole... What are they going to assume?
1: You're not there to state your case one way or another for not showing up or for not adding testimony or something like that, but it looks like you don't care.
2: Absolutely. It looks like you don't care. And even more so, all of those facts that are in your head are still trapped in there. Mm -hmm. When we go out and talk to the offender, they're going to tell us their side of the story. I can guarantee you that. And there's an old phrase that prosecutors and courts use, the light most favorable to my client. I guarantee you that the information coming out of most offenders' mouths is definitely the light most favorable to the client. They're definitely buttering their bread on one side. So I like to make sure that what they're getting is balanced. I want to make sure that the board knows the truth. Yes. So I I like for my victims to tell us the truth ahead of time. The board has at least some knowledge of these facts that might be a little bit different than the facts he's presenting. You know what I'm saying?
1: That's very well put. So uh,
2: up until 2013 here in Pennsylvania, if you were a victim, you had the ability to provide input, but you could do it in writing. Or we could make a special appointment to have your your, your statement audio taped by a hearing examiner. We successfully lobbied Pennsylvania's legislature, and and they Mm -hmm. signed the legislation in 2013 that created the requirement that the board be available for in-person testimony. I am completely blown away by it, particularly from having worked at the county level as long as I did. I like victim impact statements. I have seen victim impact statements take judges from 5- to 10-year sentences and bump them up to 10- to 20-year sentences. Good. I've also seen judges go from 10 to 20 down to 5 to 10 because a victim's family elicited sympathy for the offender. So I've seen that sword cut both ways. Okay. Here, I've only seen it cut one way, meaning that when the victim comes in, if the victim is telling us that this offender is, is a bigger miscreant than what our paperwork is showing, I see us paying attention to that. I see the board paying attention to that. Uh, Additionally, if if the victim is coming in and saying, look, I I think it was an honest mistake. I think that they just got caught in a a big mistake and it could have been anybody, including me. I've seen that impact their decisions as well. So I I do firmly believe that, well, I believe that our words carry carry weight. It's good to know. And I think that the most important thing I can say about that bill is when the day is over, you want to be able to look at yourself and know that you did everything you could. And if you let this one stone unturned and he got paroled, how would you feel tomorrow?
1: How horrible that would be.
2: Would you carry any blame around? Now, if he gets out and hurts somebody else, even though it's not your fault, would you carry blame around?
1: For those who have not been bitten by, let's say, horrible crimes, what would you tell them now to watch out for so that life-changing crimes maybe don't come into their lives? Jr. it always seems like it happens to somebody else. It's always the other people, sure. you know, and I think that it's wise for everybody to stop for a moment and say, but, you know, it, it happens to other people, but other people are kind of like us.
2: So I'll say two things about that. And the first thing is that we all, we all have that immortality of youth, long, long past our youth. We all are immortal in, in some ways in our minds. Right. And I think that for crimes, that is one of the ways we feel. You know, it always does happen to other people. It happens to them, it happens to them. Happens, and that sometimes is true. You could be lucky, you could be blessed and, and never be truly touched directly by crime. Even if you're not directly touched by it, you're touched. Because how many people get killed before the next Albert Einstein is taken out of our herd before he gets a chance to discover the newest version of physics? You know, when, when does the next Jonas Salk get killed before they can come up with a cure for cancer? So there's always that loss of capital, to use an economic term, that loss of humanity. There's also the idea that we as a, a collective, we as a species, I firmly believe that we are only as good as we treat the lowest of us. Mm -hmm. So if we invalidate the idea of crime, because it's always happening to somebody else, that happens to poor people, that happens to people from a lower socioeconomic strata than I'm in, the moment we start believing that, we become part of the problem, not part of the solution. One of the things that I'm a big fan of is saying, if you haven't been touched by crime, then go out and work against it so that you aren't. Uh, Be proactive. Mm -hmm. Join your local domestic violence task force. Join your local sexual assault task force if they have one. Donate your time to your local shelters, to your local victim services unit. Go In April, when we observe Victims' Rights Month, we always have, um, like I can tell you, in my hometown in York, we have this wonderful vigil. It starts at the Colonial Courthouse in York and, it, and marches down to a church that was built in the 1700s where we have music and poetry and, and people have an opportunity to talk about their loved one who was lost bill i haven't been in victim services in york for nine years and i still go every april i take a lot of meaning out of it there are men and women who i've known now for more than 20 years who were my victims back in the 90s who i still run into one day a year in york in april at the victim's rights vigil showing solidarity with people who've been hurt by crime showing support for them and more importantly being there and learning how they went through the system how they processed the system so that if it does happen to you or a loved one, you know how to help process this, or at least know the people to be in contact with to help you like us. I I think it's really vital. I'm a huge proponent of being proactive whenever possible. We know that the system is reactive. So with that said, don't wait for the system. Go out and get involved in your local community-based agency. You know, every rape crisis center has a volunteer program that you're free to go through and help them answer phones, become an emergency hotline caller. Your local TV shelter will always take donations of clothing and food and toiletries. As a man, in October of every year, most YWCAs do a, a walk a mile in her shoes. We've done that. Sometime we're together again. I can show you, if you Google search it, you can find pictures of me in a dress and high heels. Did you wear red high heels? Yep. If, if you raise enough money, I, I'm, look, I, I'll do pretty much anything for the right amount of money for my local shelter. So Access of York, <laughs> who, who is, they're very close personal friends of mine, the agency that I got to work with most closely when I worked in York, I love going to walk my on her shoes. I think in, in my three highest years, I raised over $25,000 for the local shelter.
1: Oh, that's brilliant.
2: I'm very proud of those efforts. And I think most importantly, I was able to raise awareness with my, some of my other uh, friends in law enforcement. My last couple of years walking in York, I was able to walk with the chief county detective from the DA's office. Okay. with the lead homicide detective from New York City Police Department. We had some really big men who were very important, very high up in their food chains, who were coming out and showing support for victims. So I think you can go ahead and believe that it only happens to somebody else, but you should probably start working towards what happens if it happens to you or your family now, so that when it does happen, not only do you know what's going on, but you have improved the system, so that the system your family goes through is a little kinder, a little more gentle.
1: And you know, one of the problems with dating violence, domestic violence, for people who are non believers, you know, they feel like it happens in depressed parts of town. It doesn't happen around here. I don't know why you're bothering me. Bill, I feel you know, bad for your story, what happened to your daughter, but eh, you know, it's it's an icky subject. I'm so sorry it happened. But but what happens too is for those who are deniers who think that it couldn't possibly happen around here, we don't live in that kind of neighborhood. Then they shut off any possibility of knowing any of the warning signs that their own kids might be going through right at that moment. Amen. So they kind of shut that off. Their kids, or maybe friends of their kids, could be having all of these warning signs leading up to something cataclysmic, and the fact that they've shut the door on any information or any thinking about it, then something can happen. Because as you and I know, dating violence, it's going on all the time, and it happens to a large percentage of women and actually a large percentage of men, too. Not quite as high as the percentage of women, but, but it happens to quite a few the people. The most
2: current stats that I've read recently, Bill, one in four women in their lifetime, which I think is low, mm-hmm. and one in nine men. Uh, I think that that's, uh, and mm-hmm. they'll suffer domestic violence in, in, in the course of their lives.
1: Yeah, I hear similar numbers. Yeah, I, I usually hear one in three women. Same idea. And really, I mean, I know that been researched and a lot of large organizations talk about those numbers. But then there've got to be a lot of people who aren't going to raise their hand if they say, now, who in here has ever been yeah. physically assaulted or sexually assaulted or abused by a loved one or someone you cared about? And I don't know. Those numbers have to be, they have to be lower, even though they're high, they have to be lower.
2: Oh, I think they're way lower. I mean, if you look at it anecdotally, I can tell you that in the last 20 years, there's one statistic I've been exposed to repeatedly. And that is that for every sexual assault type behavior that's reported, there's approximately 33, I think, that are hanging out in the world somewhere that have never been reported, never been talked about. Uh. You start factoring in numbers like that, right? that number of one in four, I think it, it gets blown way out of the water. I think also these numbers are skewed by our lack of appropriate definitions. When we talk about intimate partner violence or IPV, the violence itself is a byproduct. Most abusers don't really like the violence because... Violence yields evidence, which yields arrest, Uh, Yes. which takes you out of power and control. You know, the most important thing to remember about abusers is that they feed on the power and control, not the violence. If they're all about the violence, they're usually not an abuser. They're usually something different. They're usually equal opportunity and they'll kill or hurt anybody. Uh, Okay. But true abusers, true intimate partner Mm. violence abusers don't like the violence because it takes them out of control. Most of the time... They give you a violent episode because they know that for the next 15 times all they'll have to do is look at you or make a fist or start slapping their hand on their, their leg or punching the wall but they, they have some kind of an indicator to that victim that you better start toeing the line because you're getting really close to another lesson that's uh, uh that's my experience in terms of the dynamic of domestic violence and i think that makes it so much more insidious because people that don't know it expect to see bruises cuts sliced throats pulled out hair all these physical details that if we had all the time, would give us great cases. The majority of them don't have that. And so well, we have to start looking at other things that are a lot more subversive and subtle. When we talk about the phrase coercive control, it doesn't talk about the violence itself. You know, we're talking about using things like isolation, mm-hmm. economic control, or lack of ability to seek medical treatment and medical support. All of those things, using the children against you, threatening pets. When we start talking about these things. These are all tactics of control that don't involve any bruises on you. Any scratches or scrapes on you. Mm -hmm. When we have the ability to dialogue with people who are not well-versed in domestic violence, and they start hearing these things, you can start to see some of the lights turn on because they realize, you know what, my husband's never hit me, but I'm not allowed to walk out and get the mail by myself. That's a little weird, right? Mm -hmm. Or my husband's never hit me, but he gives me 20 bucks a week, and everything else I have to have a receipt for. You know, I've got a master's degree and an MBA, and he won't let me work when we start seeing those tactics of control and these things click for people they start to realize that the violence itself is just a byproduct now it happens to be the necessary byproduct to involve the system because the system also does not recognize things like isolation economic control control of one's occupation those things they don't the system doesn't recognize that as criminal mm-hmm. but when we expand the scope of what is domestic violence to include the tactics of coercive control and manipulation. I think it becomes a lot more real and a lot more next door. I've been around for a long time and I've seen a million DV cases. I've had a lot of people that look just like you and I. I will tell you flat out, I know that this rumor is still out there and persists. And I think we're kind of hinting around it right now. DV knows no bounds.
1: Equal opportunity.
2: Absolutely equal opportunity. I've had clients who made millions of dollars a year And did not want to press charges because they didn't want to give up a salary. I've had clients who had super secret federal clearances who, if they got convicted, you know, if their their offender got convicted, would lose this job. You know, as an FBI agent or as a CIA agent, Mm. there really is no rhyme or reason to the, the victimization pattern. What we know is that people who feed on power and control have a great tendency to become abusers. People who show vulnerability to people who are in power and control sometimes have a tendency to become victim and prey to that power and control. There are no boundaries to that. White, black, doesn't matter. Male, female. uh, I've had Uh um, male clients going back into the 90s. You know, the one thing that I I can tell you is that the one thing that hasn't changed is the serial nature of the offenses. You know, I, I believe in rehabilitation to some degree. I think that you have to have two things to rehabilitate. Mm-hmm. You have to have the tools, which I do believe that we, especially at state level, provide to every offender who really wants to receive them. But the second thing is something we can't give you because it's got to be internal. It's got to be, and that's drive.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix
1: things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: From people I've talked with, it sounds like people who are being abused, serially abused, they aren't getting out of that until they bottom out and they can't do it anymore. And then they find a way, you know, if they can, same thing seems to apply then to the abusers, you know, unless they bottom out, unless they look in the mirror one day and say, I have to stop doing this. I've told myself that before, but this time I really mean it. I have to stop. Otherwise they're going to keep it coming. Right.
2: With clients, one of my mentors and my, one of my best friends, he was the, the uh, stop unit detective, the domestic violence detective in the DA's office when I went back to begin working in the DA's office again. He later on became chief county detective in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. But Stu and I, we have spent a lot of time together professionally and personally. One of the things that he has reinforced for me over and over and over is to listen. I have to listen. When a victim starts telling their story, it's not an interrogation. It's not even an interview. You're giving them a platform. And so I want them to tell that story.
1: We've all heard about the cycle of the abuser. You know, you do this for a living. You know all this stuff so well. You've seen so many examples. And you know, you're taught in every possible way, you know, experience probably being the greatest teacher. When you think about people who commit crimes in a domestic violence way, Tell us about what your view on the cycle of the abuser. Are you seeing this as learned behavior that they picked up at some point in their lives or they grew up in a rough family? Or
2: Bill, we're going to take a great big step back in philosophy. And I'm going to tell you that I am a nurture guy. When it comes down to the nature versus nurture argument, there are a couple of, a couple of actions that we're born with. But I think for the majority of our behaviors, they're learned. Violence is absolutely a learned behavior. Although I don't know that violence is as much learned as it's unlearned. I think that violence, like all animals, were born with a certain degree of it because we needed it, evolutionary speaking, back in time for the purposes of self-defense, right? Mm -hmm. I think that part of our job these days as rational thinking human beings and not animals is to train that violence out of the next generation, you know, the way that you and I did with our children. Yes. I think that the learned behavior of domestic violence comes from watching that and from never being taught that it's not appropriate. Yes. And I also want you to think about how powerful. I think that for those of us who don't understand how you could abuse somebody, I don't think that we understand exactly how addictive it is. And that's one of the reasons when I did my master's thesis a number of years ago, I wanted to examine the efficacy of the different modes of treatment with regards to recidivism and domestic violence offenders. Now, keep in mind that my study was really small, very small. The numbers were lower than 100. But in in the population I examined, the only ones that showed any signs of reduction in recidivism were offenders who had been subjected to both batter's intervention and drug and alcohol. Mm. And so uh, my theory, and it's just my theory, I don't want you to think this represents anybody else, but my theory right now is that it is not only a learned behavior, but it's and a behavior that's got addictive patterns. You and I, when we want to argue, we have to ration and reason with one another. We've got to compromise. All those things are hard. They take time. I I had a teacher one time tell me that compromise is the only time where everybody's unhappy. I kind of see it the other way around because I try (laughs) to be an optimist, particularly at work, but I see her point of view. With that said, for an abuser, to be able to shut down any argument with just the hairy eyeball or with just a word Mm. Right, just staring at somebody. All of those things, I think, right. are probably addictive. I think that having you, getting your own way or what you believe to be your own way immediately, that has a very reinforcing type of you know, follow-through. And it's much more difficult mm-hmm. to be a real human being and to be a rational thinking, arguing, reasoning adult. So I think that a combination of seeing it, seeing it work, and then seeing how powerfully it works in your own life, creates a pattern of behavior that is absolutely as, I I believe, as addictive and as hard to break as heroin. You know, I, I see domestic abusers all the time. When
1: I think about it, let's say for a moment that I'm the abuser and I am the all powerful and all I have to do, like you say, is stare at somebody, look the wrong way, raise my hand. All I have to do is something like that. And all of a sudden, all those things I was talking about are magically taking place. So I guess then I have to ask, what's in it for me to not have that happen? I mean, I'm all powerful. Why should I share the power?
2: My belief is that that's why accountability is so important with domestic abusers. Going back now, probably close to 30 years, there was a a very small change in the wording of the law in Pennsylvania and some other states. And that word that was changed from may to shall. And I know that that seems like I'm I'm starting a semantic argument, but it really in, in the idea of the law is not the idea of shall refuses all discretion on behalf of the officer, whereas the word may gives the officer a choice between doing this or this. That law was changed with regards to domestic violence. And basically the way that it is interpreted these days is if a police officer goes out to a home, hears that there was a domestic, a fight, a harassment, whatever, and sees any evidence of it, the discretion has been taken out of their hands. They can no longer do what we used to do in the 50s and say, hey, I'm gonna go for a drive you're going to go for a drive too. And when you come back, you're going to be cooled off because if I have to come back to this house tonight, you're going to jail. Cops are not supposed to do that anymore. And I really don't believe they're doing it as often as, as we kind of maybe joke around about sometimes because that word was changed from may to shall. Mm-hmm. And officers understand that If that you means, can
1: give me that in the sentence, that would help. Uh, like, what, what do you mean? Do that for me.
2: So instead of you may charge, if you see this, you shall charge. Meaning that instead of having a discretion, the cop now has no choice. If I see evidence and I hear words that say I was abused, I have to charge. Okay. Taking that discretion out of the hands of police officers. I think that that raised awareness for them because they began to realize that they were part of the problem. Okay. When they would go out to the home, tell him to go cool off, go for a walk, come back home, don't make us come back out here tonight. What they were doing was perpetuating the cycle of violence and showing the victim that the system doesn't care enough to intervene. Okay. I think that little things like that have made huge changes in our industry and in the way that we prosecute and hold people accountable. Uh, but, Bill, that, that word right there is the most important word that I can use with you, and that's accountable. The only way that we're going to change this for any mm-hmm. offenders No matter how entrenched the behavior, no matter how addictive the pattern of behavior, the only thing that ever changes that behavior for any of us, man, is accountability. We have to hold them accountable. One of my professors from college, who who I still remember from 30 years ago, one of my favorite professors, who was the chairman of the psychology department when I was at Millersville years ago, she used to always say that everything's a matter of perception, said the speedy turtle to the slow snail. I loved it when she said that to me because it taught me really what perception truly is. The way that society perceives that statement, shall instead of may, that is a demonstration of the fact that society now cares because you're not allowing a single human being to make the decision. We as a society decided that behavior is unacceptable.
1: Yeah, you must act.
2: That was a step in the right direction. I think that accountability is the only thing that's ever gonna save us. And then last but not least, raising awareness which is why I'm so glad to be with you and to be able to speak with people like you because I think I mean I'm not the person who said it first but the truth of virus man it's just the way I feel it really is
1: you've really thought it through and that's a that's a great position that you've taken on that I you know I I really appreciate the the depth of your thinking and it's it's great to have you come on and share that with us it really is uh you know so insightful so there's such a thing as an a ap- apology letter, which goes into something called an apology bank. And it's something that an inmate can write. It's written with the idea that it may or may not wind up in front of the victim's family.
2: Absolutely correct. Just as a matter of record, we also refer to the inmate apology bank as the inmate accountability bank. You'll hear those names used interchangeably. I have probably at this point in time read hundreds, if not thousands of apology letters. And Bill, 99% of them are the same apologies that we would not have accepted from our children when they were small. You know, I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, you know, you push my buttons, or I'm sorry, and I'm putting my life back together, which is basically an apology that's not really an apology. I just want you to know how well I'm doing. Now, I don't want to sound like a complete total cynic. I have read some apologies that were profoundly moving and that demonstrated what I believe to be true remorse true insight into their crimes and and no minimization of what they did. But I'd say that by and large, the apologies that I see are probably not exactly that. A couple things to keep in mind about them. They are told up front, if you're doing this for the purposes of parole, don't bother because we won't share it with parole. The parole board is never informed whether or not there's an apology, never informed as to whether or not the apology was ever accepted by the victim's family. The idea of an apology is completely and totally outside of the idea of parole. We don't want them apologizing specifically to try to curry favor in the parole process. So when it comes to that that inmate apology letter, we will neither confirm nor deny for the parole board whether such a letter was ever written or received. And for the record, if when we're reading and reviewing that letter, if we determine that that's the gist of the letter is I'm writing this to be paroled, then we return it to the inmate, let him know it's not a heartfelt, remorseful apology and that they've got to rewrite it, that we will not pass it on in the format it's currently in. Now we do that for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, if you're victim blaming or if you're kind of really, really loving the details of your crime to the point where you're, you know, maybe fantasizing about it a little bit or something. You know, we we kick those letters back immediately. They're sent back, they're told it's unacceptable the way it is, rewrite it. If you need help with rewriting it, ask your counselor. Same deal with the ones that are basically written to Curry Favor with the parole board. Write a real apology and we'd be happy to forward it. That's a little bit more about the Inmate Apology Bank. We will keep that letter forever.
1: You probably have been in contact with more victims' families than anyone I will ever interview on this podcast, no matter how many I might do. I mean, you've heard from hundreds of people and heard hundreds of sad stories. You walk out to your car, how do you not take that home with you? How do you leave that at work?
2: I'm not going to lie and tell you that's the easiest part of my job. I also Mm -hmm. was maybe one of the last generations of Americans who was raised to believe that we are at least in part defined by our work. It's really hard for me to leave this stuff at work because not only do we have that, but we have the idea that if I drop the ball, uh, somebody ends up hurt or dead. I don't ever take that responsibility lightly. Likewise, I really mean, and and this might sound like a cliche again, but my daughters drive my behavior. They make me want to be a better man. And they have since the, the very first day, 19 years ago, 19 years and one month ago, I have never stopped wanting to be a better man because of them. I treat every client that I ever have the way I would expect and demand that my daughters be treated. If they were going through this system with somebody else, I, I, this is the way I want people treated. And that also means you have a great tendency to not forget about your work when you leave. With that said, I still have to have boundaries. I still have to, I still need downtime to be able to do what I do. I'm a firm believer in in counseling, and I'm a firm believer that we all have um, psychic batteries of some kind, and that when those batteries become full, they either discharge or they overcharge, and they're both bad things. Mm -hmm. So I'm a firm believer of that. I also am um, one of the preachers of self-care in this office. I do uh, regular trainings for the office and and outside of the office in some uh, relaxation techniques and mindfulness techniques. I use those every single day. I took three minutes to do some deep breathing, and I didn't even break eye contact. All I did was change my breathing pattern because we've talked about some difficult things. And so it's important to uh, make sure that I'm present for you at that moment. So by taking those three or four quick but meaningful breaths, I was able to bring myself back fully into the moment. So I'm a firm believer in, in things like yoga, progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing exercises, meditation. I also am very plugged into my family. When I get home, I really don't have time to think because I've got two daughters that are teenagers. I've got a wife and a dog and, and we've got a home that functions. Bill, I'm going to tell everybody who's in this line of work if you don't have a therapist, go get one. It's not fair to you or your family if you don't have one.
1: Talk about that some more. I mean, wh- why is that? I mean, it seems like such an obvious thing in a way, but I'm just go down that pipe a little bit farther. Why is
2: that? Well, you know, people who take care of people are the worst people in the world to take care of. We all have a tendency to be fixers. You've been on a plane before, right? And they tell you yeah, that sure. if the uh, oxygen mask descends Whose oxygen mask do you put on first, yours or your child?
1: Yeah, of course the child.
2: Nope. You put yours oh, on first. Oh, oh, oh. Because if you pass oh. out before you get theirs on,
1: oh, that's right.
2: they die and you die. So, And it takes a while to learn that. Trust me, we all have to learn that because it's counterintuitive as a parent. You know?
1: Yeah, you want to save the child.
2: Sure. So the, they tell you the best way for you to save your child is to save yourself first. Yes. Well, this is one of those situations. I can't be an effective victim advocate unless I myself am whole. Yes. I can't help other people self-actualize unless I'm on the road to self-actualization myself.
1: Yeah, you have to be centered. You know, you have to get there.
2: You can't, if you're unstable, you can't make anybody else stable, right?
1: So, JR, is there anything that you would like to share with us or tell us before we close our interview today?
2: So, I'm going to leave you with a story. I can remember one of the first times I was ever asked to do any public speaking. You know, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at Access York's Sexual Assault Awareness Month kickoff and wanted me to just make some closing words and to try to bring everybody together. Mm. The theme that year was, what can I do? And so I thought long and hard about this. I want to share with you a story of, of my oldest daughter, Chloe. So she had to be less than five. We used to go to a bluegrass festival that I've been going to since I was a baby. It's called the Fiddler's Festival. It is in a little town called Brogue, and it's in the middle of the woods. And there are people who wander off their farm that haven't been in town for 50 years that will stand up in the woods beyond the property playing in little circles, just little guy, groups of guys that get together and play. And then there's also a main stage where you can go down and watch the paid acts. But one of the big draws to this is walking around and watching all these musicians who are not paid musicians doing it for the love of music. So Chloe is wearing her little sundress, and it's got flowers on it, she's a beautiful little girl and we had given her some temporary tattoos to share with some other kids and they're sitting in our blanket in the middle of the sunshine with bluegrass music playing and this little boy comes up and you know says would you like to share my candy chloe said well if it's okay with my parents we okayed it she got a piece of candy and she said can i share one of my tattoos with you he asked permission and his mom said yes so they shared and then He gave her another piece of candy, and Chloe said, that is so nice of you, and leaned over and gave him a kiss on the cheek. So later on, the kids are playing on the blanket, and I'm watching some music, and I hear him say, give me another kiss. And this kid's only about five. And she said, no, I don't think so. I'm not ready now. And he said, no, I said, give me a kiss. Well, you know, as as a father who does what I do for a living, the first thought I had was, son, no means no in my house. And I just looked at him and said, young man, let me just tell you something. Where I come from, no means no. If somebody tells you no, they mean it. And that doesn't mean you should ask again. It doesn't mean you should try harder. So why don't you just learn that when a woman says no, she means no. And so my wife asked me later on that night, are you sure that you should have done that? And I said, well, let me ask you, was I unreasonable with him? Did I yell? Did I holler? No, you were really good. Okay, well, what lesson did he learn? Well, he learned that no means no, particularly when it comes to a woman. So, well, honey, why shouldn't I have done it? Mm. So the, the lesson I leave with everybody is, Everybody is wondering right now, what can I do? Well, it's really simple. Every day there's a lesson to be taught somebody. Every day there's somebody who's going to look at you and need help. Every day is there's a possibility that somebody's going to come up to you and say, I'm leaving my, my husband and I'm worried you know where I can go. So my answer to you is do the little bit you can every day. Raise awareness. Network with people. Make sure that people are connected with resources. You know, those are those are wonderful things that I always ask people to start. And I'm so glad to have met you because of it. But there's little tiny things that we can all do every single day. And first and foremost, if you're a parent, make sure that your children understand that the word no does mean no. Not just when it comes to what mom and dad Mm -hmm. say, but when everybody else says things. Make sure that they know they have autonomy over their bodies. And make sure that they know that they always have a safe place to turn if things go wrong.
1: Oh, that's great. I didn't see that coming. That is really, really, really special. All of that. You know, your kids are so lucky to have you. They wouldn't
2: say that, brother. Trust me. (laughs) But I use the public databases to run the names and addresses of every one of their boyfriends, every one of their friends' families. I've been in the courtroom with parents who were saying, my God, how did this ever happen? I can't even believe this happened. How did it happen? I know how it happened. I can't allow it to happen. So I do that. I I am a little overprotective, a little overparanoid. Right. I think for good
1: reason. Well, your kids will live longer and live better. No doubt about it.
2: I sure as hell hope so, brother. From your lips to God's ear, man.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. JR, thank you for giving us your insights into the Pennsylvania Office of Victim Advocate. And I'm sure many families who've lost loved ones look to you and your team for hope and also to help them get through what is really such a difficult time having to prepare themselves and and write letters of objection, maybe testify in front of a parole board. You know, they get that one hour that they go there and they pour their hearts out and they hope when they leave the building and get in their car or they turn off their computer in the Zoom meeting. They hope that they made a difference and that somehow justice will be found. And but I know your job has to be very challenging. And I've learned more about what you're doing today than I ever dreamed of. And I knew a lot before. What you do includes not only giving assistance to highly emotional people under demanding circumstances, but also staying within the laws and procedures. And I mean, there's just so many things, emotional on one side, logical things, and you know, all the the do's and don'ts so nobody steps on a rake. And on behalf of those families out there who are trying to only to seek justice, I want to thank you for what you and your team do. And from what I hear, you're pretty good at it. So thank you so much.
2: I just want to make sure that everybody knows that if you have any questions, problems, or concerns, if you have like an update on an offender in state prison, or if you've been a victim and you need to know where to go, reach out to us here at OVA. 800-563-6399.
1: Good. And that is Pennsylvania.
2: That is Pennsylvania. Yes. That's correct. You can call us from outside of PA. I just don't know as much about it.
1: Well, you're busy enough in that one state, that's for sure.
2: I've got one to take care of, thanks, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's already hard enough to understand.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, man. It's been an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me.
1: I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play Survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil, All the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHerts.com.
0: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time